knows better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Children often follow in the footsteps of their parents, and for those of us who are parents, we have often seen our children do things and say things that we do. Sometimes we're proud of that, and sometimes we cringe because we see them doing things that we wish we didn't do and that they didn't follow us in. And sometimes our children do things like we used to do as children. My mom will often say when she's visiting, you know, especially when Eden is making up songs and singing them loud, oh, Matthew, that's what you did when you were a child. And so, you know, Eden never saw me do that, but, you know, just even uh, as my daughter, she kind of does things that I did. And um, as kids, we often recognize even that our behavior is like our parents. And as we start to get older, we sometimes think, you know what, there's certain behavior, there's certain traits in my parents that I never want to do. And then we get to that day where all of a sudden we're shocked by the reality of I'm becoming like my mom or I'm becoming like my dad. I'm doing what I said I would never do because naturally children often do what their parents do. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, we've, I've read a lot of marriage books and you see that, you know, one of the things that you recognize is our default is really what we've seen. And what we've seen is what we grew up with, our parents' marriage. And so as we enter marriage, unless we're purposeful to change and be more godly, or maybe they were godly, but if they weren't, you know, we're probably going to start doing similar things to what our parents did and what we saw, because ultimately uh, that's what we do as kids. And I share all this because here in chapter 26, we're going to see Isaac following in the footsteps of his father Abraham. And some of the things that Isaac is going to do are going to be a good uh, demonstration of what Abraham did and what we praised him for. And unfortunately, we're also going to see Isaac follow some of the things that Abraham did that was sinful. And Isaac does some things that he probably would have never seen Abraham do, but yet, as Abraham's son, follows in the footsteps of what his father did as well. And so the phrase that we so often hear, like father, like son, is definitely one that would describe the chapter that we're going to look at tonight. Um, So as we go through this, I just want us to kind of be recognizing how much our lives impact others, especially our family and those closest to us. It could impact them in a positive way because they could follow our faith, they could follow our obedience, they could follow godliness in our life, but it also can impact people in a negative way as if they follow the sin uh, in our life. Now, before we get to chapter 26, I want you to note that what we're looking at tonight actually takes place before what we looked at last chapter. And you would think, well, that's weird chronologically. But remember, last chapter we had, it's really the focus of the genealogies. You had the genealogy of Ishmael, and then you had a genealogy of Isaac. Now, in the genealogies, the main goal is just to share, okay, here's the person and here are their children. So we saw Ishmael, he had 12 sons, ultimately became princes. And then we have Isaac, and he only had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And then the chapter finished with some details about Jacob and Esau, how they got their names, uh, and then some of the trickery and cunning of uh, Jacob towards his brother. But now we get to Isaac. It's kind of interesting because the last part of Genesis focuses on four men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and um, Joseph. And of Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph, you have a huge portion of Scripture. Isaac only has this one chapter that's kind of dedicated to him. We've seen him elsewhere, but he wasn't the focus. Abraham was the focus. Even last chapter, his son was the focus. This is the only chapter in the Bible where he is the sole focus of the chapter. Uh, But we kind of take a, a step back. Before his children are born, we're going to see some things in his life, some ways in which he 
responds just like his dad did. And so this is before um, the miracle birth uh, of his twins, before his wife, who was barren, uh, is enabled to have kids. And we're going to see how the influence of his dad definitely impacted his life. So Genesis 26, starting in verse 1, we see this. There was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. Now, if you remember back in chapter 12, when Abraham first came into the promised land, there was a famine. Now, Abraham was 175 years old when he died, and he was 75 years old when he first came into the promised land, and so there's been 100 years since the first famine that we looked at in Abraham's life, and now the second famine in the promised land here in Isaac's life. So, you know, it's been a while, but now we have another famine. And if you remember in Abraham's time, a hundred years ago, when he met the famine, you know, he didn't respond very well. Instead of staying in the promised land and trusting in God, he just says, you know what, I'm going to get out of here, I'm going to go down to Egypt where their famine's not existing and brings all sorts of problems into his life. And so now Isaac's faced with the exact same situation. There's a famine in the land, and the question is, okay, what am I going to do? Am I going to stay in the promised land? Am I going to run away from the promised land? Am I going to trust God, or am I not going to trust God? He has the same situation that his dad had, and we're told that he heads towards Gerar, and he meets up with Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. Now, It's important to note Abimelech here is not a person's name, but it's a title. It's a royal title for a Philistine king. Uh, and so just like the royal title of Pharaoh, you know, when we look through the book of Exodus, we see Pharaoh and we assume that the Pharaoh is the same the whole time, but it's not. Uh, there's times that go through. So, you know, this is a, a, a king name or title. Uh, and so you think, well, Abraham met Abimelech. Yes, he met a king of the Philistines, but most likely not this king, uh, because there's been uh, 75 years from the time that Abraham met Abimelech to this Abimelech. It's possible it's the same one, but most people believe that this would have been his son, uh, because the other one's probably dead at this point in time. Uh, and so when you realize, oh, the same name, it's only because it's a title, it's not the actual name of the king. And so Isaac comes, and he comes exactly to the same place. Remember, Abraham went to Gerar. Abraham met you know, the king of the Philistines there, and, and Isaac does that as well. But as you can see from the map here, Gerar is at the bottom of the promised land. It actually borders Egypt. It's as far south as you can go before you leave the promised land and enter the land of Egypt. Now, the reason I bring this up is because in verses 2 through 5, we're going to see God speak to Isaac and the first thing that God's going to tell Isaac is, don't go down to Egypt. Now, you don't tell someone, don't go down to Egypt, unless that was their plan. And so, ultimately, Isaac was doing exactly what his dad did. There's a famine, we're headed to, e we're headed to Egypt. So he's traveling all the way down south. He stops in Gerar, but that wasn't the final destination that he had in mind. He was going to go all the way to Egypt, and that's why God says, don't do it. So, he responds just like his dad did in trying to leave the promised land in order to protect himself. He doesn't trust the Lord here, but God comes and he speaks to him. So here's this moment where Isaac is like, you know what, I'm leaving the promised land. There's a famine here. I don't really trust that I can survive in the midst of this famine. But before he gets out of the promised land, notice what the Lord says to him in verses two through five. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father, and I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give you to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws." Now, it's important to know this is the first time that Isaac has God speak to him directly. 
Isaac would have heard the voice of God in a very powerful way. Remember, as he's laying down on the altar and his dad has a knife ready to kill him and a voice comes from heaven to Abraham basically saying, don't kill your son. I know thou that you won't withhold anything from me. So Isaac would have listened and heard the voice of God during that, but it wasn't towards him and it wasn't, it kind of was for him in some regards, but now he hears it for the first time where God is speaking to him uh, about um, a particular thing. And so notice here the, the first thing that we're told, you know, don't go down to Egypt. Live in the land which I shall tell you. Isaac, I don't want you to leave the promised land. I want you to stay here. Now, this is a big mistake in his dad's life, and God is trying to spare him that. Don't go to Egypt Stay in the promised land. And then he gives Isaac a good reason why he should stay. Dwell in the land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants, I give you all these lands. Now, Isaac has a good reason to be fearful. It's not you know uncommon for someone who thinks, hey, you know what? I'm not going to be able to survive here. You know, there's a famine here and I'm not going to make it because, you know, I have all this cattle, I have all this stuff, there's nothing growing. I need to get to a place where I can sustain things. I need to get to a place where I can go. Can you open that back door? It looks like we can't get in. And so Isaac is, is there and, you know, this is the situation that uh, is transpiring and God is saying, you know what, Isaac, you don't need to worry. Don't worry about the famine. Don't focus on the famine. I want you to trust in me because I am going to take care of you. I'm going to make sure you don't starve to death. I'm going to make sure everything works out well. And then God shares with Isaac the same covenant he made with Abraham. You remember the Abrahamic covenant was a threefold covenant. It dealt with three things. And notice what God does, uh, says to Isaac here, I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father, and I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now, I'm sure that God had, or that Abraham had shared with Isaac this covenant that God made, but Isaac has never heard this from God's lips. And this would be important because, yeah, dad told me that God told him these things were going to happen. And I'm sure that encouraged him, and I'm sure he was blessed by that. But there's something far more uh, powerful when you hear it from God himself. And it's not just secondhand knowledge. It's, hey, God is reiterating this. God is making sure Isaac understands these three things. I'm going to make your descendants multiply as the stars in heaven. Now, remember, this is before he has any children, and he already knows that his wife's barren. And so this would have been a very important you know, promise of God to him, just like Abraham had that promise, and it was important to Abraham. Now Isaac gets this. Second, I'm going to give to your descendants all these lands. Everything around here in the promised land is going to be for you and your descendants. And third, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And that's the other one, the one that blesses all of us, ultimately through the seed of Abraham, and then Isaac is going to come the Messiah, where we're all going to be blessed because of that. And so this covenant that God made with Abraham, he's saying, now it's come to you, Isaac. It wasn't just to Abraham, it's now to you, and it's going to be passed on to those who are your children as well. And so this would be very important for Isaac to hear. But notice what God says about his dad in verse 5. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. I love the fact that God speaks about what he was able to do in and through Abraham as opposed to just speaking about Abraham in general. Because if he was just speaking about Abraham's life, he couldn't make this statement because Abraham didn't always keep his commands. Abraham didn't always obey. But yet God was able to work in and work through Abraham to get him to a place where he was obedient, where he did do what God commanded. And I think this is an encouragement for his son who's listening to this and he's fearful. God, will you really take care of me in the promised land? Is this really going to happen for me? And then it's like, hey, look what I did through your dad. Look at where I brought your dad to a place where he was able to obey me, to a place where he was able to do what I called him to do. I can do that in your life as well, Isaac. And I think that's the exact same thing that God wants him to know and understand 
because God is going to do that in and through him. So Isaac, don't leave the land of promise. Don't go to Egypt. Stay here. I know there's a famine, but I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you, and I'm going to make this covenant with you so that you know what's going to take place for you. So now Isaac is in this place, and he has a choice. Am I going to obey? Am I going to stay? Am I going to do what God says or not? You know, what God tells Isaac here, I'm sure was a great encouragement to him. And I hope that it's an encouragement to us because we face similar things. And you look at Isaac and he's in the place where God wants him. And this is something that I think we often confuse. We think, well, if I'm in the promised land, if I'm in the place where God has called me to be, there's not going to be a famine. Well, that's not biblical. Just because you're where God has you doesn't mean that there's not going to be trials, doesn't mean there's not going to be famines, doesn't mean there's not going to be hardships. And sometimes we conclude, oh, if there's a famine, I must not be where God wants me. If there's a difficulty, I must not be where God wants me. If there's a trial, I must not be where God wants me. No, Isaac was where God wanted him. He was in the promised land, but sometimes there's famines. Sometimes there's trouble. Sometimes there's trials in the midst of that. And the question is, are we going to go through them, stay where God has us, or are we going to run away from where God has called us to be because there's a famine that we're facing? You know, I think so often we encounter these famines in our natural desires, our flesh. It wants to get away from it. None of us are like, oh, I love famine. I love, you know, heartache. I love you know, trials, we don't want that. And so there's something within us that says, let's get away from this. Let's run from this. Let's go where the grass is greener. Let's go where things are easier. And, you know, we try to get away because we don't think we can survive in the midst of the famine. You know, you see this a lot in Christian marriages. There's a famine, there is problems, there are issues within the marriage. And the response that many people have is, let's just get away from it. Let's just get, let me get away from this person. Let me get out of this marriage and things will be so much better. And, you know, God has clearly called us to stay in marriage except for specific reasons of adultery and things. But, you know, for the most part, the, the issues that arise in marriage aren't issues where we get to walk away. But so often in the Christian world, it's like, you know what, this is hard. This is difficult. And I'm just going to go. I'm just going to walk away and I'm not going to continue to do this any longer. Um, and that's not what the Lord wants from us. You know, this happens a lot in ministry. God calls you to a specific ministry. It doesn't have to be full-time pastor or anything. But, you know, there's a ministry in which the Lord calls you to and leads you in and you're a part of. And at first, everything's great and it's going well. And all of a sudden, there's a famine. There's difficulty. There's people that you're ministering to that are hard. Or, or maybe someone stabs you in the back and says something. Or you know, There's, there's just things that happen that can be problematic and difficult. And you get to a place where it's like, you know what? I'd rather just not do this. I don't want this headache. I don't want to deal with this. I'd rather just, you know, hey, if there's going to be a famine and this is going to be happening, I'll go where, you know, I'm appreciated or I'll go where it's easier, whatever is going through our mind. I know in the 17 years of pastoral ministry, I've encountered several famines within ministry and definitely my flesh will be like, hey, what are you doing? Just get out of this. This isn't worth it. You know, there's things in which you feel like, yo. I don't want to have to deal with these problems, but we have to recognize, hey, this is where God's called us. And because he's called us, he doesn't want us to leave. He wants us to trust him in the midst of it to get us through it. And we need to hold on to promises like Isaac's going to hold on to. But the Bible's full of wonderful ones. One that I think is an encouragement to us is Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. For he himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may be bold and say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? You know, in the midst of the famine, in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the trial, we need to understand this promise, God doesn't abandon us. You know, sometimes we feel like that, but the reality is, it's not true. He's always with us. He'll never leave us, He'll never forsake us. He's always there with us in the midst of it. And oftentimes we're saying, Lord, get me out of here. And He says, no, I want to get you through it. I don't want to pull you away from it. I called you to do this. I know it's hard, 
but I'll be with you in the midst of it. And I love how it goes on to say that then we can boldly say, the Lord's my helper, I won't fear. Since God's going to help me, why do I need to fear? He's there with me. He'll get me through it. What can man do to me? Another great promise that we should hold on to is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, as we're in the midst of this and we're thinking, man, maybe I should get away from this because it's so hard. No, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. My marriage is difficult. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This ministry is so hard. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That we hold on to that and realize he doesn't want us to run from where he's called us to. He wants us to trust in him to give us the strength we need to get through the difficult time that just is a reality in the Christian life. So God wants Isaac to stay in the promised land. So let's see how he responds. Verse 6 says, So Isaac dwelt in Gerar. Isaac doesn't continue on. He's gone all the way south. He was about to go into Egypt. God says, don't do it. Stay. And so he does. He stays in the promised land. He stays in Gerar. Now, something that's important to note, though, is he doesn't go back to where he came from. You see, Isaac wasn't dwelling in the midst of any big cities. He wasn't dwelling amongst the Philistines. He kind of had his own big area. And, you know, because of that, didn't have the problems of being in the midst of a city full of unbelievers. But now, because it's so far south, it seems that the reality is that the famine is probably worse farther north you go. And so, hey, yeah, I'll just stay in Gerar. This will be the place that's best for me and for my family and for everything that I have. But because he doesn't go back to where he was and stays in this big city with the Philistines, it's going to bring some problems that he's now going to have to deal with and a problem that his dad dealt with when coming to Gerar. Verse 7. And the men of the place asked about his wife. And he said, she's my sister. For he was afraid to say she's my wife because he thought, lest the men of the place kill me for Rebekah because she is beautiful to behold. Well, doesn't this sound familiar? This is the exact same thing that his dad does with the exact same place and the exact same people. He has this fear. He's got a beautiful wife. Abraham had a beautiful wife, Sarah. And he says, you know what? Tell everybody you're my sister so that they won't kill me so they can have you. Isaac now, he's in the same situation. Now he's dwelling in this city where there's all these Philistine men. He has a beautiful wife, and he tells her, hey, tell everybody you're my sister so that they don't kill me, and we will be okay. Now, Isaac wasn't alive when his father did this twice. Remember, he did this in Egypt, and he did this here in Gerar. And we don't know if Abraham... Uh, and Sarah told Isaac about this. Oftentimes as parents, we don't want to admit, you know, a lot of the sinful choices that we've made. So we're not sure if, you know, he actually was aware of what his dad did. But whether or not Isaac knew, he still had the same fleshly problems that his dad did. The problem of fear and the problem of trying to take care of himself and his own strength instead of relying on the Lord. That was something that was within him. Whether or not he knew his dad did this or not, he struggled with the same things and he responds in the exact same way that his father did. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because, you know, when you are in a place of disobedience like Abraham was when he left to go to Egypt, you shouldn't be surprised that, okay, right after that, you lie. But the interesting thing with Isaac is he's just come off of an obedient time. He was about to go to Egypt. He was about to leave the promised land. But yet God says, don't do it. Obey me. Trust me. Stay here. And he says, okay, I'm staying in Gerar. I'm not going to go anymore. And so here Isaac's kind of in the spiritual high. I've done what's right. I've been obedient. And then right after it, he follows it up with this lie, with this sin. So Abraham went from disobedience to sin. And Isaac goes from obedience to sin. And, you know, this is something I think is interesting for us. We see an example of this in the life of Peter. Jesus comes to the disciples and says, who do men say that I am? And different guys give different answers. And Peter gives the right answer. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus kind of says something to Peter that I'm sure made him feel really great. Hey, 
Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. And so, Peter, God showed you this. You answered rightly, and the Lord has given you this answer. And I'm sure because we know that they argued about who was the greatest all the time, Peter's probably looking around saying, yeah, I got the right answer. But right as the conversation continues, Jesus tells them, I'm going to die, and three days later I'm going to rise from the dead. And right after Jesus tells the disciples that, Peter says to Jesus, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. You are not going to die. You will not rise three days later. Far be it from that to happen to you, Jesus. Jesus just tells him, You answered rightly. God's revealed that to you. And then Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. In a matter of minutes, Peter goes from this spiritual high to this fleshly low. And, you know, I think we need to recognize that that is a reality that can happen for us. We see this with Isaac. He goes from this spiritual high of obedience to this fleshly low of fear. i got to protect myself, and so I'm going to come up with a scheme to lie and take care of myself instead of trust the Lord. You know, we oftentimes, when we're in that place of a spiritual high, I find that we're sometimes more susceptible to sin. When we're disobeying, you know, oftentimes we realize kind of the state that we're in, and we realize how susceptible we are to the sin around us because we're in that state of sin already. But sometimes when we've just had this spiritual high, we've been obedient or we've overcome a sin, we kind of get to this place of thinking, oh man, I got this, I can handle it, whatever comes my way, no temptation is going to take me down. And sometimes we, we feel, you know, uh, about ourselves the way that we shouldn't. We feel stronger, we feel, you know, this, I'm going to have victory no matter what mindset. And I think we need to remember what 1 Corinthians 10, 12 tells us, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And this is a warning, and I think this warning is for those who have spiritual victory. Because when you have spiritual victory, you think, oh, I I can stand, I can handle this, nothing's going to knock me down. Well, be careful, take heed, lest you fall. We need to always realize, you know what, I have a sinful desire, a flesh within me that wants sin, and so I am always susceptible to temptation. I should never get to a place where I think, oh, I could never do that. I will never fall into that. I don't need to protect myself from that because look at me. Look at the victory I just came from. Well, sometimes in the greatest times of victory, we fall in the worst ways. And so Isaac goes from obedience to God to this lie. She's my sister, not my wife. Now, unlike Sarah, Rebecca does not get taken into the harem of Abimelech. So Everyone thinks that she is Isaac's sister just living in Isaac's home, but no one seeks to or tries to marry her um, at this point in time. So God's kind of protecting her in that way. But the lie's been said. Now let's see what happens. Verse 8. Now it came to pass when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw, and there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah his wife. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Quite obviously she is your wife, so how could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I said, Lest I die on her account, or account of her. And Abimelech said, What is it that you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Notice we're told something here that I think is interesting to note. When he had been there a long time. So Isaac's in Gerar. Right when he gets there, he has this lie that, hey, my wife, tell everybody you're my sister. She does, and people believe it. And now he's been there for a while. He's dwelling in this city for a while. People have bought into the lie that he's not married and that uh, Rebecca is his sister, not his wife. And he's probably got to a point where he thought, hey, this worked out pretty well. I got away with this. You know what? No one's trying to kill me on behalf of her. And everyone just thinks that I'm her brother and and things are fine. And we've been here for a while and nobody's found out about my lie. And so he's probably thinking, hey, this, this has worked. This is good. But then one day, Abimelech the king, he's looking through a window and Isaac and Rebekah are there, and we're told that Isaac was showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. 
Now, the Hebrew word translated endearment means to caress or show physical affection. And so I'm sure that Abimelech's first response was gross. Wait a second, you guys are brother and sister. And then he realizes, no, wait a second, you're not brother and sister. Brother and sister doesn't do that. So, you know, he sees what he realizes, oh, you are married. It's quite obvious by your behavior that you're married. Uh, and so he calls for Isaac and he says, quite obviously, she is your wife. By fact of what I just saw, so how could you say she is my sister? Isaac thought he was getting away with his lie because so much time has passed by. No one has seen the truth. No one has found him out. But he discovered a biblical truth that I think all of us need to understand, and that is seen in Numbers chapter 32, verse 23. It says this, But if you do not do so, then take note, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. You know, this is a biblical truth that we deceive ourselves with. So often the enemy convinces us, you'll do this and no one will find out. No one's going to know. It's just going to be your little secret. But the Bible reveals, no, your sin will find you out. You might get away with it for a while. But there's going to come a point in time where that sin's going to be revealed, where God's going to bring it to light, and, and it's going to be seen for what it is. Some of the most dangerous sins that we do are sins that you know we get away with for a while because that leads to more sins. Well, you know, no one's seen this one, and all of a sudden now this builds to something more, to something worse. I remember reading about a pastor who writes after everything goes wrong. He commits adultery on his wife, and but he goes back to the beginning, and he starts with this pornography addiction that he had that no one knew of. And for years, he just continued in it. No one knew about it. No one called him on it because, you know, he didn't tell anyone. He kept it secret, and it was hidden. But that just continued to build and build and got to a place where finally, you know, that wasn't enough anymore. Now I want to seek to actually commit adultery uh, against my wife, and he does that, and then he's found out for doing that, and he loses his wife, he loses his family, and he writes about it, and one of the things that stuck out to me was the place where he said, you know what, I wish I would have told someone about this addiction. I wish someone would have found out when it was pornography before it got so much worse. And so oftentimes, you know, these sins that we think, hey, we're getting away with no one's seeing, they can be even more damaging because of what they ultimately build because we continue in them because we think, hey, nobody knows. But the bottom line is, who cares if nobody sees it? God always sees it. We're never getting away with it from Him. He knows exactly what we're doing. We can't hide it from Him, and we need to understand this biblical truth. Our sin's going to find us out. It can be just between you and God, and you can confess it, and it can be dealt with, and you can move on, or you can continue in it, and God's going to bring it to light, and it's going to be seen, and it's going to be more painful, and the consequences are going to be greater. Abraham, he was faced with the same issue. Abimelech calls him out. What were you doing? What were you thinking? I took her into my harem. I mean, I could have slept with her. Why would you do this to us? And Abraham has a chance now to respond to his sin. He could have taken responsibility for his sin. He could have apologized for his sin. But if you remember, he doesn't either. He doesn't accept responsibility. He passes the blame. He doesn't say his sorry for what he did. He kind of just try to you know, justify it. And so now we have Isaac. He's in that same situation, and he has that same opportunity. He's been called out. His sin has been found out. All right, am I going to apologize? Am I going to take responsibility? Or am I just going to try to, you know, dodge what I've done? Well, this is what he says. Because I said, lest I die on her account. A very similar response to his dad. I, I'm not really accepting responsibility. I mean, I, I was going to die if I didn't do this. I mean, this is why I had to do it. He's trying to justify and said, you know what? I was wrong. I didn't trust the Lord, I sinned, I lied, I put my wife in a bad situation, I put the men in this area in a bad situation if they were to um, try to marry my wife, uh, but he doesn't do any of that. And then Abimelech says, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech charged all his people saying, he who touches this man or his wife 
shall surely be put to death. Sadly, just like his dad, Isaac is rebuked by a pagan king. I mean, it's sad that a pagan king has to rebuke your behavior when you're the one who's supposed to be the light to them and they have a higher morality in certain areas than you do. Uh, And so just like his dad, we see a, a pretty much mirror image of what takes place. But now this happens. And just like with Abraham, the one thing I love about both these stories is in the midst of their failure and sin, you know, you would think maybe God's like, I'm going to put this on hold here. You know, we're not going to do much with you. And right after this, we see something wonderful that happens in Isaac, verse 12. Then Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. The man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous, for he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him. Isaac goes to Gerar because of the famine. He's wanting to go to Egypt. God says, no, stay here. I will take care of you. I will be with you. I will bless you. And Isaac has to make a choice. Do I really believe that? Do I really want to put my faith in the fact that God is going to bless me if I stay here where there's a famine, or should I just go to Egypt where there's not a famine and I can take care of myself? He makes a choice. He says, you know what? I'm going to believe what God says. I'm going to put my faith in him. But notice... There is actually faith that is demonstrated. Notice what he does. We're told in verse 12, Isaac ultimately sows. He plants some things and then he reaps a hundredfold because the Lord blesses him. You know, Isaac planting these seeds was a step of faith. Because in the midst of a famine, you could think, well, what's the point? Nothing grows. Everything's dying. You know, why should I even put the time and effort into planting seeds? You know, it's not going to do any good for me. It's not going to help me anyway. But you know what? Isaac plants seeds in faith because God said he was going to bless Isaac. And that's exactly what God does. In the first year, he reaps a hundredfold. Now, I want you to think about this because if, if the situation was perfect, you know, the climate was perfect, the, you know, there was no famine, everything was great, in the first year, you still wouldn't reap hundredfold. That would be abnormal. In the midst of a famine, to sow seed, in the same year, reap a hundredfold back for each seed that you sow, that was miraculous. God was doing something amazing and blessing Isaac in this. But you know what? It brings an important principle that I want us to understand. We see this principle clearly displayed in Galatians 6, 7-9, through 9, which says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will also of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. You know, this is a great principle that the Bible brings up, that you reap what you sow. Whatever it is we sow, we're going to reap that. If we sow the flesh, sow to the sinful things of our life, we're going to reap the consequences, like we just saw with Isaac, reaping consequences. We sow to the spirits. We're going to reap blessings from God. If we're in a place where God has called us to, even if we are in the midst of a famine, we need to keep sowing seeds. You know, this can be hard to do because we often think, which I'm sure maybe even Isaac would think, what's the point? Why should I sow seeds in the midst of this famine? Everything's barren. Everything's hard. You know, nothing's working. You know, what's the point of putting all this effort into sowing seed if I don't think anything is going to grow out of it? When we're faced with situations like that, we've got to remember what verse 9 says, and it's a wonderful encouragement. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. You know, it's easy to grow weary in doing good when you're in the midst of a famine. When you're thinking, man, I'm sowing and I'm sowing all these good seeds and I don't see any fruit, I don't see any growth, it just seems like hard soil everywhere and I'm doing all this effort and there's really nothing that I can see to show for all this work and you can easily just get weary. Grow weary. Lose hearts, want to walk away. But God says, you know what? 
Don't grow weary while doing good, for here's the reason. In due season, sometimes that season takes a while, but in due season, we shall reap if we don't lose heart. Because when we lose heart, we walk away. We lose heart, we say, forget it. Well, we're not going to reap if we can stop sowing. But God says, you know what? You keep sowing, and there's going to come a time where you will reap if you don't lose heart. You know, I experienced this my first couple years as a missionary in Scotland. The people there very hard, hard to the gospel, hard to the Bible, hard to God. And, you know, it was just such a slow process of trying to get people to listen and get people to, you know, respond to the gospel. And it just, you know, there was just such little uh, fruits in the first couple years of what I was hoping for and expecting. And, you know, I was starting to grow weary. And God brought me to this of, you know what, just keep sowing. Keep doing what I've called you to do. Don't grow weary. In due season, you're going to reap. It might take a while, but just keep doing this. Keep sharing the gospel. Keep investing in people's lives. And you know, then the Lord started moving. We started seeing more and more people get saved, more and more people growing. But you know, it's that place that says, you know what, if I gave up, if I would have quit, then this wouldn't have happened. But we just continue to do it, trusting in faith that we're not wasting our time, but that the Lord is going to work as He said He will. You know, God encourages us to keep sowing seeds, but the world oftentimes will just tell us the opposite. You know, what are you wasting your time for? We share with our family the gospel. <laughs> you know, they're never going to listen to you. They're never going to you know, respond to that religious stuff. You know, what's the point? Just stop doing it. We try to sow into our marriage. Oh, your spouse, they're never going to change. You know, why are you even putting in the effort? You might as well just get out of it now. You know, the world has this mindset of just leave and go be happy somewhere else. And God says, stick with it, keep sowing, and watch what I'll do. A pastor is walking down a country road and he goes and sees a young farmer struggling to put hay back on a uh, wagon where it all had fallen off. And the pastor said, you look hot why don't you rest a moment and I'll give you a hand? No thanks, the young man said. My, my father wouldn't like it. Don't be silly, the pastor said. Everyone is entitled for a break. Come sit down and, and have a drink of water. Again, the young man protested that his father would be upset. Losing his patience, the pastor said, Your father must be a real slave driver. Tell me where I can find him and I'll give him a piece of my mind for working you so hard. Well, replied the young farmer, He's under the load of hay. I like this story because so often we have well-meaning people who tell us, stop working, stop sowing, stop doing that. You know, just give up. It's not working. It's not happening. Nothing's, nothing's, you know, there's no fruit from it. But the Lord is saying, no, keep doing it. Keep sowing. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Due season, you're going to reap. Don't listen to even well-meaning people who are telling you something different than I'm telling you. When your marriage is having problems, your spouse is hard-hearted, you don't see anything changing, you feel like giving up, keep sowing seeds. Trust in the Lord that He's working and that in due time you're going to see that. When your family keeps rejecting the Gospel and every time you share they don't want to hear anything, keep sowing seeds. Trusting that the Lord is working and you're going to see fruit. Isaac sowed seed and God blessed what he sowed with a hundredfold harvest. You know, God was sending an important message to Isaac. Like I said, I will bless you. Like I said, I will take care of you. You can trust me. Even in the midst of this famine, look what I have done to provide for you and to provide for your family. But you know what? Isaac's not the only one blown away by what God did. The Philistines see this as well. The Philistines are sowing seed and they're not probably getting anything. It's a famine. They're the typical response. The seed goes in the ground. Nothing happens. If anything grows, just a little bit. And so what is their response? We're told at the end of verse 14, so the Philistines envied Isaac. They'd envied him because of what God was doing. They, hey, I want to sow seed and have a hundredfold blessing in one year. Why isn't God doing that for us? And so there's an envy of what was happening with Isaac. And as often is the case, that envy, which was a feeling, turned into an action. Notice what they do. Verse 15 and 16. 
Now, I, now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they had filled them with earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Envy is a desire for something that someone else has that you don't. And a common response to our envy is what we see here from the Philistines. If I can't have it, then you're not going to either. Now here's something you need to understand. You know, Gerar is a desert region. There's a famine going on. To grow crops, any crops, you need water. It doesn't rain much there, so you need to actually water your plants, and the only way you get water is from wells. Now when Abraham lived in this area, he had his servants dig a bunch of wells. And so Isaac would have had a lot of wells of water to draw from, but notice what the Philistines do. They fill in all those wells. Oh, we'll get you. We'll stop you know, this hundredfold thing happening right now. We're going to take away your water in the middle of this desert. Every crop you have is going to die. You know, you're going to have to leave. You know, their envy has brought them to a place where they clog up these wells, which actually would have been problematic for them as well because those would have been wells that they would have been able to tap into, but they don't care. You're not going to have this blessing if we're not going to get this blessing. And so they clog this up. And then Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, comes to Isaac and says, Go away from us, and here's the reason why, for you are much mightier than we. They recognize the blessing of God, and they realize, Hey, you have got to a place where you're much mightier than we are. We want to get rid of you. Similar to what we see with Pharaoh when ultimately he makes the uh, Israelites slaves because they're growing and they're growing. He's thinking, hey, you know, they're going to be a problem to us, so let's deal with them. Well, the mindset of Abimelech is, get out of here, Isaac. We don't want you here because you're mightier than us. You know, when we're blessed by God, something that we face often is envy from others. And we shouldn't be surprised when we see the world envy us. I mean, the world responds in sin. That's not a surprise. But the reality is we also get envy from other believers. And that shouldn't surprise you either because guess what? As believers, we're still sinful. You know, we never get to a place where we're sinless. And so, you know, the sad reality is sometimes we'll come and be like, look what the Lord just did. Look how the Lord blessed me. Look what the Lord gave me. Look what the Lord did in this way or that way. And sometimes we'll share that with someone, especially if they've been struggling or praying for the Lord to bless them in a particular way. And instead of being happy for you, they're sad for themselves. Instead of being like, I'm so pleased that God has blessed you like this, they're thinking, why didn't God bless me that way? Why didn't God give that to me? I want that as well. Why is he giving it to you and not to me? And there's this envy that can happen. And our flesh, you know, it, it quickly thinks about those things and, and tries to pursue those things. And we just need to be careful about that. You know, a couple weeks ago, I saw my flesh moving in that way. The pastor of this church, you know, they got this church for free and he put this post out and it was a great post about, you know, how he's so blessed of the Lord and what the Lord did and giving him this place for free and how much it was so wonderful. And there was a part of me that's thinking, why doesn't the Lord bless us with a free place? You know, instead of, wow, Lord, praise the Lord that you blessed them and, and did that and, and just God, you know, helping me see, hey, deal with that. That's not for me. That's not uh, a thought that you should be um, feeding or giving into. So Isaac has been asked to leave Gerar because he's become much mightier than the Philistines. And I want you to note how he responds, because how he responds is a great example, and I think goes against probably the way in which many of us would respond in the midst of a conflict of this nature. Verse 17 says this, Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt and Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by their names which his father had called them. Also Isaac's servant dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water's ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they quarreled with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, because he said, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. So Isaac is asked to leave Gerar, leave where he is 
living leave where God has been blessing him with the abundance of a hundredfold of his crops that he has planted. And according to Abimelech, Isaac is mightier than the Philistines. So in a practical sense, he could just say, no, make me. I'm mightier than you guys. I'm not going anywhere. God's blessing me here. I'm going to stay here. And what are you going to do about it? He could have, you know, dug his heels in. He could have fought. He could have said, you know, I'm not leaving. I'm here. You guys go. God's blessing me, not you. This is my place. You know, this land's being given to me and my descendants anyway. I mean, there could have been a lot of things that he could have done and to said, you know what? I am going to fight and I'm going to stay and I'm not going anywhere. But that's not what he does. He leaves the city of Gerar. He just moves out to the valley, the surrounding area. Uh, and okay, fine. They filled in all the wells. He digs a new one. They find water. Now they have water. Now they can just start living there. But the herdsmen of the Philistine and the herdsmen of Isaac, they start quarreling. And the herdsmen say, hey, this is ours. Uh, wait a second. You didn't dig it. We dug it. No, no, this is our water. This is ours. You know. And so Isaac, once again, he could have said, no, uh, we're going to keep this. We dug this. But instead, he names the well Essek, which means quarrel based off of what just happened, and he moves on. Okay, fine. They dig another well. Same thing happens. Hey, this is our water. Get out of here. And, you know, after the second time, you're like, no, no, no. It takes a lot to dig a well in the desert. You know, this is our water. This is our well. You know, we're not giving this up. He could have fought. He could have done all these things. But once again, he just says, okay. And he moves on. And then he names that well Sitna, which means strife, because that's definitely what has transpired. And then he moves and digs another well, but this time no one quarrels over it. He gets to have it. No one's fighting for it. It's his. And he says, for now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the lamb, land. And so he names that well Rehoboth, which means roominess. So he has this quarrel, he has strife, but now there's room. There's room for me, and there's room for all that I have here, and he's blessed by that. Um, and so, you know, how Isaac responds here to the contentious Philistines, I think is a good example for us. Instead of digging in our heels, instead of just being ready to fight right away, for many of the battles we face in life, our best response is just to lovingly move on. It goes against our flesh. Our flesh wants to fight, especially if we feel like we deserve it, if it's ours or whatever, you know, but there's oftentimes, you know, battles where it's just like, you know what? The best thing for us as believers to do is just lovingly walk away, lovingly move on. Jesus said something similar to this in Matthew 5, 38-39. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your cheek, right cheek, turn the other to him also. You know, when it comes to what people do, we have that eye for an eye mentality. <laughs> you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you just as bad. You know, whatever you do to me, I'm going to get back at you. And, you know, that's what our flesh wants, and, and that's how we often respond. And Jesus says, you know what? Don't do that. Don't resist an evil person. You know, later on, Jesus is going to say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hurt you and persecute you. When we face a battle with someone, we should always show love. And usually the best thing to do is to move on and not to fight. That's not always the case. There are things as Christians we need to stand up for, we need to fight for, we need to fight for the gospel, we need to fight for the word of God, we need to fight for unborn children, we need to fight. You know, there are certain things that, hey, as believers, we shouldn't be sad to say, I'm going to fight for this, I'm going to stand for this. You know, But a lot of the battles that we face, especially with people in the world, it has nothing to do with that. It's just quarrels, maybe they're envious or whatever. And, you know, the best thing that we can do is just lovingly move on. You know, not get ourselves into all this issue and problems. You know, and I'll even throw out there, you know, from a more practical thing that we're always on is social media. Lovingly move on. Don't feel like you have to battle over social media with certain things. You know, it's just like, you know what, it's not worth it. Let's move on. We're going to continue on and demonstrate a godly behavior towards these things. And I think Isaac shows this meekness, this willingness to say, you know what, I don't need to fight about this. I'll move on. Yeah, it was my well, and you took it, and then you took this one. But you know what, I'm just going to keep going until God provides a place. And notice the Lord does ultimately bless him, not only with a place, but a place that he's able to dwell with in peace. If he would have fought, he could have got that land. He had the power to do it. 
But he would have been surrounded by people always wanting to get back at him. There would have always been this problem. There wouldn't have been peace because of the war that he ultimately would have given into. And so because he's willing to walk away, he ultimately gets to this place where he can actually live in peace with those who are dwelling around him. Verse 23, Then he went up from there to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord, and he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servant dug a well. Now Isaac is going back to where he actually came from. He's headed back up north a bit. He comes to this place called Beersheba, and the Lord appears to him while he's there. And the Lord says something to him, and very similar to when Abraham rescued Lot, and Abraham was worried about what was going to happen with these armies, were they going to come after him? Isaac's worried. The Philistines are, you know, they didn't want him around. They're pushing him out. They're taking his wells. He's worried about, you know, is he going to be able to dwell in peace for a while with them there? And notice what the Lord says to him. I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. And as I mentioned before, God doesn't say don't fear unless you're fearing. You know, Isaac has fearful right now for good reason, not knowing what's going to happen with the Philistines. Don't fear. Why? I'm with you. I'm there with you, Isaac. I'll take care of you. Remember I said I bless you? I did that. I will protect you as well from the Philistines that are around you. I'll bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. And here's something that I think is wonderful. We've seen Isaac respond like his dad in negative ways, but one of the things that Abraham did, and we we saw the, the change in his life, was when God did something, fulfilled a promise. We saw so often Abraham responds by building an altar and calling on the name of the Lord. And that's what we see here with Isaac. The Lord moves, the Lord promises, the Lord is blessed, and he responds by saying, you know what, I'm going to build you an altar, I'm going to call upon the name of the Lord, I'm going to worship you for what you've done. And this is a great thing that we see, you know, his dad did a wonderful thing patterned in his life as well. And then we're told that Isaac's servant dug a well. So they're in this place, he pitches his tent, they dig a well. He would like to stay there, but they got to find water because you can dig a well all you want and it could just be a big hole. So, you know, he wants to stay there. It's the place where he met with God. And now uh, we're going to see something take place because right after God says, you know what, don't worry, I got you, I'll protect you. Look at right away what happens. God fulfills that, verse 26. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahazeth, one of his friends, and Fiscal, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? But they said, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So we said, Let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm since you have not... We have not touched you, and so, since we have done nothing to you but good, and have sent you away in peace. But you are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. Then they arose early in the morning and swore an oath with them, with one another, sorry, and Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. He's worried that there's going to be war. He's worried that the you know, Philistines are going to come after him. He was, you know, this is what's going on. God says, trust me. I'll take care of you. Right away, while he's there with the Lord in Beersheba, Abimelech, his friend, and a leader of his army, they travel up to Isaac, and Isaac's like, why are you here? You guys hate me. You sent me away. What do you want? And they see God's hand of blessing on Isaac, and they say, hey, we want to make a covenant with you. We want peace with you. We've seen what the Lord is doing in your life. We haven't done anything to you. We sent you away in peace, and we want to make a covenant that there will be peace between us. And this is a huge answer to prayer because he's afraid of what would happen. God says, I'll take care of you. And right away we see an answer to what God said with now the king and the leader of his army saying, hey, we are going to have peace with you, Isaac, and with all of your family and servants and everyone else. This is great news, but Isaac gets even more good news. Notice what's said in verse 32 and 33. It came to pass... The same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, we have found water. So he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. 
So while Isaac is there, remember his servants are digging a well, but they haven't found water yet, and he can't stay there unless they do, and they come to him with this great news. He's already got good news. Abimelech says, hey, we want to have peace, and they leave, and now his servants come and say, hey, the well we dug, we found water, it's great. Remember, every well he's named, well, now he names this well Sheba, which means oath. Hey, God made an oath with me here. I'm going to dwell with God here. I'm going to live here, and I'm excited for the fact that God fulfills His oath, fulfills His promises, and what a great time in His life. Now, verse 34 and 35 deals with Esau and would fit much better in the next chapter, and so we'll look at that next week. But in this chapter, we see Isaac walking in the footsteps of his father, Abraham, We see him doing some foolish things just like Abraham did, but we also see him doing some good godly things of obedience to the Lord and calling on the name of the Lord and building an altar to the Lord. And just a reminder as we look at this life and we see a lot of things that we already saw in Abraham's life, but just the reality that what we do, how we live, our actions, our thoughts, our words, people see what's going on. They follow what's going on, especially those closest to us. We have a big impact on them, either towards the Lord or away from Him, depending on how we're living our life. And so, you know, we need to keep that in mind. I think sometimes we think, well, it's just me. You know, I'm the only one who's going to suffer or the only one that, you know, no, we're not. You know, we are examples, whether good or bad. And we need to keep that in mind, especially as we see, you know, the people around us watching uh, and observing our life. So any thoughts on what we looked at here in verse or chapter 26.